This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Idea Podcast for June 28, 2019. Here we're sitting right on the cusp of the big Canadian July long weekend. That's the big one. Yeah, what are you doing? Camping, of course. You have to go camping on the yeah, July no. long weekend. Well, yeah, I had to actually book my site like in January. I know, to get it's this. crazy. It's yeah. just uh, the queue for uh, camping spots is ridiculous, which is why I don't go camping <laughs> because you know, everybody in town clears out and uh, it's just really nice and quiet. And yeah. uh, I actually tried that once. I stayed home during a long weekend and it was like a ghost town in Calgary. Yeah, yeah. the week is so jam packed with so many things going on. I actually relish. No agenda. When people ask me what I'm doing, I basically say nothing. And uh, that's a good thing. (laughs) Well, and it is kind of a very busy time for people in Calgary. You have this July long weekend, then we have a bit of a short week and we get right into Stampede. Stampede, So it's such a busy time and it's hard to get work done. So we're really hoping you guys have time to listen to our podcast. We know there's a lot of exciting things coming up. Yeah, and you'll hear it over Stampede. We've got a special uh, live show coming up, I think. Yeah, that's right. During Stampede, we're going to do a live show. So watch for that and get some real perspectives from investors. Yeah, fantastic. Good. What are we talking about today? We are talking about a commentary that we posted on our website. We'll show you the link. It's called Mind the Gap. And it really, uh, you know, I took a look at this International Energy Agency report, 176-page report that was published about a month ago. Uh, We'll post that one too. And basically, what it talked about was how and I'll, I'll use the quotes, energy investment is misaligned with where the world appears to be heading. It's saying that the amount that is being spent on things like renewables is completely insufficient to facilitate this transition that everybody's talking about. Right, the two-degree world, that, yeah, uh, and yeah. even 1.5-degree world. And, you know, the most interesting, there's a lot of interesting points in it, but there's a chart that's in the commentary that you can see from the link. But it basically shows the world investment in renewable energy. And you might be surprised to know that it's actually been flat to declining. It really peaked in 2011 at around a little over $300 billion U.S. annually. Yeah. And it it's sort of slowly drifted down from there. It's uh, just maybe 10% down from its peak. Uh, so that's pretty shocking considering all the talk about renewals getting cheaper and cheaper and more yeah. abundant. You know, we hear a lot of the sound bites about how renewables are growing very quickly, and they are, uh, especially in certain countries, certain European countries, and uh, certainly the United States and places like China. But actually, the inconvenient truth here is that if you look at spending on renewables from a global perspective, it's actually on a gentle decline. In fact, over the last 10 years, the average has been about $300 billion a year. The cumulative spending all on renewables, you know, really when it started in earnest around 20 years ago, uh, is just over $4 trillion. And uh, the, the, the chart that we posted and accompanying this write-up shows that it's just a very small sliver. You know, and the, the point that I wanted to make on this is that, first of all, how capital intense the energy business is. And, you know, $4 trillion is just a crazy amount of money, especially mm-hmm. over 20 years, and it's barely made a dent. You know, then what we show is how much needs to be spent. And, you know, the International Energy Agency and many other credible agencies show what needs to be done if we are going to reduce emissions to comply with the Paris Accord or more. And you can very clearly see if that, you know, if all we got for $4 trillion was barely a dent, then there's no way with the current level of spending 
even if costs continue to fall for renewable energy, we're ever going to be able to achieve the scenario that is being painted going forward. But one criticism of that view is that renewables are getting cheaper and cheaper. And so even though we're spending $300 billion today and it hasn't increased, we're getting way more renewable capacity for every dollar we spend. And that can continue to happen. So could it not be that we spend at this rate, but we just get three or four times more efficient with the amount of generation we get for each dollar spent? Yes, that's very true. True that if you cut the cost of renewables in half, which which it has halved even in the last half dozen years, then every dollar spent gets you twice as much capacity. And that's why you see sort of an exponential growth in the amount of capacity of the renewables. But it still pales. It still pales compared to the existing stack of all the primary fuels that the world demands. It's the, the market share of renewables as a fraction of all energy is still relatively constant. And that's because people continue to demand more oil, more gas, more coal. And that's explicitly laid out in this report as well, is that, you know, it's just, yeah, people are demanding more renewables and it's being installed, but they're also demanding every other type of fuel as well. And if you want to make that substitution and push out the fossil fuels, you got to ramp up your spending you got to ramp up the spending by two to three times. And you know, actually, it's on a decline. Right. And on top of that, you probably have to see another halving of costs over the next 20 years. Okay, so you know, we're at $300 billion. So you're saying we've got to at least get to $600 billion and even yeah. probably higher than yeah. that yeah. In, in order to meet these targets. Right. And so on our last podcast, we talked about that we need to do more to incent investment in yeah. green, and there's things going on to do that. But yeah, still, it's a pretty big goal to sort of double or even triple that amount of financing. Yeah, it is. And I think that there's another important point to be made is that, you know, the good news is the cost of renewables is falling. We also know the cost of oil and gas is falling, but that's, you know, let's put that aside for a minute, that when costs fall, you're in a deflationary environment. It actually means that there's less and less money to be made for the people that are producing, say, solar panels, Mm -hmm. wind turbines, et cetera. In other words, margins get squeezed. And, you know, as margins get squeezed, there's less and less incentive for financial institutions to come in and basically spend the money on installing more capacity. And then on top of that, you know, again, it's a separate discussion, but in many of the Western countries where the transition we really want to take root, electricity demand is flat. In some instances, in some countries, it's falling. So you've got a no-growth market that is getting more and more brutally competitive with thinner and thinner margins. So actually, it's no surprise to me that uh, the cumulative spending on renewable energy is actually uh, is waning yeah. uh, as you go forward. Well, there's an interesting discussion. I'll go back to that Sarah Week 2019 um, where the head of Shell's Integrated Gas and New Energies Unit made the comment that the only way we're going to make this transition happen if we start to get higher returns. And he was predicting that over the next 20 years, he believed that we should see 8 to 12% annual returns. But the recent history has been low single-digit returns yeah. for renewables investing. And he's basically said there's no way we can fund this transition if we can't start making money at it. Yeah. Um, and you won't get the capital flowing in. And so I guess reports like we talked about last week are really important to figure out what is the right set of, of things that we need to get people financing these projects. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, that's the whole area of sustainable finance. 
And what is it going to take to create the catalysts for institutions and government and corporations, et cetera, to fund this? But I, you know, it's, it's, there's a big gap to fulfill uh, in this transition. And, you know, it's really all predicated on the notion that bluntly, and I pointed this out in the article, uh, it's the strategy of trying to put fossil fuels out of business, right? And trying to put an incumbent business that is so large out of business is just incredibly difficult to do. And importantly, it also doesn't take into account the costs of decommissioning existing infrastructure. It doesn't take into right. account the occupational change. In other words, laying off, well, globally, it would be millions of workers associated with the fossil fuel supply chains and so on. So the costs are way bigger than I think people think. You and I have had this conversation before on the podcast. It's like, what is the goal here? Is the goal here to put the fossil fuel businesses out of business or is the goal to reduce emissions? Because there seems to be a strategy drift away from the goal of reducing emissions to putting fossil fuels out of business. Like, I think we have to shift it back to thinking about, okay, if we have $300 billion to spend, let's spend it on the places that have the highest and easiest and fastest way to reduce emissions. Okay, but the counter-argument to that would be that in 2050, we, if you look at some of these projections, yeah. we need to be 80% reduction in our CO2 emissions in order to meet the, you know, not having the long-term warming being right. more than the 2 or 1.5 degrees. So, you know, we need to move off these things because eventually we're going to have to, and we're just sort of, by making them better, it isn't actually getting rid of our long-term problem. No, you're right. And I, I'm not saying I have the all, all the answers, nor, nor are you. But what I am saying is, look at the numbers objectively. Plan A is not working. Okay, right. We got to yeah. start thinking differently because, you know, I can't tell you what 2040 is going to look like or 2050 is going to look like. Nobody can. But I can tell you with a very high degree of certainty, this scenario that is being published by many, many agencies, including the International Energy Agency, the uh, sustainable energy scenario, mm-hmm. where we try and hit the Paris goals and beyond, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, and the important thing is actually they put that one out there, but they actually have their uh, base case one, which yeah. uh, shows something yeah. very different, which yeah. is the trajectory we, were on, yeah. we are actually on right now. Now, I would say the Shell Sky scenario, I really like that one mm-hmm. because basically what they tried to do is look at a practical way that we could get to that 80% reduction by you know 2080. And what they showed was exactly what you say. We have this existing infrastructure. We have trillions of dollars in power generation plants that exist today that aren't going to be prematurely scrapped. We also don't have the scale to be able to move to these green technologies immediately. So they actually show, you know, gas demand continuing to grow into the uh, early 2040s before it starts to decline because we sort of need that to get there. And so, you know, there is more than one path to get here. And it does, I think the sky scenario is pretty practical in that it shows that in order to get there, we need to reduce the emissions as, as much as we can from fossil fuels, so moving to natural gas. But eventually, we move off those to the, the no-carbon type technologies, but it doesn't happen in the next 20 years. Right. And I think that is what we exactly need to be looking at as different types of scenarios. And, you know, candidly, because that scenario came out of Shell, which is an oil and gas company, when it came out, it was sort of poo-pooed. But I think we have to revisit these sort of scenarios if we're serious about getting back to the original objective, which is reducing global emissions 
and the, answering the question of if I want to reduce emissions as fast as possible, where would I spend a dollar today mm-hmm. to have right, the biggest right. impact? To have the, the biggest impact because, because yeah. okay, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting we let up on the 300 billion dollars in renewables, whatever. But I am suggesting that incremental dollars should be spent potentially differently because this strategy is really not working, and the numbers show it. Now, I want to talk about something you just mentioned uh, briefly there is just the fact that there's going to have to be occupational change, putting workers on the street associated with moving off some of these technologies. So when you go shut down those trillions of dollars of existing infrastructure, those people don't have jobs anymore. And we've found that if you don't think about that in terms of what are you going to do with these people, how are you going to get them trained up to have work in the future, you're going to get a lot of resistance to this change. And so just a couple of examples, you know, the coal workers— you know, Trump vowed to save U.S. coal miners and bring back coal. Now, he hasn't been especially successful at that, but he did actually get a lot of support uh, in the well, 2016 election with that message. Yeah, I, I think these are really important things to be thinking about. And, you know, if I think about the renewables narrative, it's very heavy on technology and very heavy on technology driving down cost, right? But cost includes social cost of displacement, political costs. And in certainly in democratic countries, people vote. And people who are being put out of work vote hard, as we know, whether it's in places that are coal-heavy, like Virginia and places like that, or frankly, even in Alberta. I mean, we've mm-hmm. seen job losses in the oil patch, 100,000 plus, and the, the people have voted. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, more emphasis needs to be placed on the social political calculus in this energy transition. And by the way, uh, China is one of the biggest coal producers in the world. They have millions of people working in the supply chain from the mines on up. And they know in their calculus, it's very difficult to put those people out of work and where do they go? Mm-hmm. You know, and you look at the latest, uh, I think it's the BP numbers that came out a couple of weeks ago. Again, you know, coal consumption is actually going up. It's not going down. Yeah. And it's interesting. You think in, in communism, they can just do whatever they want. But mm-hmm. if they put a whole bunch of workers out of work, it, you know, they care yeah. about that too, right? That can create resistance to their sure. government. And so sure. in democracies, it's really fickle. Like, for example, yeah, just we're not even talking about putting people out of work, just making the cost go up by putting right. a carbon tax. Yeah. Uh, we've seen in Ontario and Alberta. And I wouldn't say these were the only reasons that we got to change a government, but definitely that messaging around the carbon tax was yeah. part of the message. Yeah. You want to talk a bit about efficiency? Because, I mean, that's plays big yes. into these scenarios. Like, for example, the International Energy Agency's sustainable transition scenario effectively sees almost immediately a flatlining of global energy demand. Yeah, this is really interesting. So the chart that we show shows that we continue to grow in our use of energy, our primary energy use. So every year we grow maybe 2-3% in terms of how much energy the world uses. And so if you look historically, over the last 25 years or so, we've actually increased about 55% in terms of the total amount of energy we used. It's pretty phenomenal uh, in terms of that growth. It compounds, right? I mean, 2-3% doesn't sound like much, but on a big bigger and bigger base, it's huge. Yeah, so, you know, 55% more energy compared to 1990. So, like, you know, almost the time I graduated high school, the Earth is using 50% more energy. So, this is the thing we don't talk about enough. You graduated in 1990? I know. I'm really dating myself. I'm not even going to tell you when I graduated. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was a few years after. But still, (laughs) that's kind of scary. (laughs) How much energy we're using. 
Oh, so, no, it is. It's, it's, you know, you look at this. Like, that's just in, like, you know, the time I remember. Yeah. And, and people don't talk about that when they think about these projections. Yeah. So the interesting thing, if you go to the IEA and you look at their scenarios where we're going to meet this requirement of, of meeting the two-degree scenario or the sustainable development scenario, we basically see a real change, like 5 to 10% growth over the next 25 years. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to imagine how much change that's going to require. Huh. So, like, how would that happen? It would be that... You know, instead of having your car that takes so much fuel to drive a kilometer, suddenly you have an engine that's so efficient that you use half as much. You know, we'd need to see that everywhere we look. Like, you know, the furnace we use in our home would have to start using a lot less energy for the same output. And everyone would have to change their equipment that already exists to be able to flatline that growth in primary energy use. Yeah, I mean, the the challenge with efficiency is that if you make the system such that you can drive the same amount with half the gas, what you end up doing is driving more because you feel like you can get gas cheaper or you buy a bigger vehicle, right? Or you buy a bigger home if the furnaces are more, if your energy costs are cheaper. You know, that's historically yeah. what or, has happened. Or you put more right. LED light bulbs uh, in yeah. because uh, oh, they're so yeah. efficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, LED <laughs> yeah. light bulbs are like one-sixth the energy of a regular uh, light bulb, but what you do is put in six times as many lights, you know, under your kitchen counter, on the floor, you know, the night lights, et cetera, all the accent lighting. Yeah, you know, all so, those Christmas so, you lights. Know, all the, all, <laughs> you know, the Christmas lights. I mean, all the savings you get from energy efficiency is typically taken up by just using more. It's called the rebound effect. And, you know, I think we are at a stage where technology is making the rebound effect less than one. In other words, okay, we are making gains. Mm-hmm. However, you know, what is efficiency? Efficiency is actually generating more capacity at the same cost. And so what happens is is that um, people just buy more. Well, that's where you need communism maybe to make this happen, <laughs> no. right? You have to say only no. so many light bulbs per house. We're, we're we don't mandating need communism. <laughs> communism. We need common sense, okay? Because there's a big difference between conservation and efficiency. And we yeah. just have to get into the mindset that if you make something more efficient, it's not a license to go and use twice as much. Yeah, well, right? and, and just, regulation can, can play a big role. I just want to highlight uh, the thing that I think environmentalists should be protesting as opposed to the TMX pipeline. They should be protesting that the U.S. Uh, has rolled back their standards for making vehicles more efficient. So under Obama, they would have doubled their fuel efficiency of cars. So mm-hmm. even the Ford 150 would have been, you know, using half as much gas per kilometer if Obama's rules had gone through. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now Trump has rolled those back. And so, you know, regulation, I think, is so important to drive efficiency. The individual consumer doesn't necessarily create that drive the way that regulation does. It it doesn't, although that comes from culture. And I think that some, you know, European countries have the culture of understanding the value of conserving rather than just merely making a pickup truck more fuel efficient. Yeah, but it's, I agree with you, the f- emphasis really now has to be on the consumption side. That's where 80, certainly for combusting fossil fuels, that's where 80% of the emissions are. It's in the hands and the choices mm-hmm. that consumers make. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. So, you know, these scenarios are uh, not encouraging in terms of where we're going. I think we do need, as I said, a plan B. And uh, there's going to be a lot more to talk about because as the next few years go by, I think you're just going to see the top line consumption go up and you're not going to see actually the market share of fuels change that much in the absence of some wholesale change 
in uh, in the consumption side and in terms of the policy side. Okay, let's talk about that plan B because, you know, the people that say, oh, we got to go all to renewables, they have this perception that oil and gas doesn't change, that it always will create a lot of CO2 and therefore we're just kind of locking ourselves into fossil fuel use forever mm-hmm. by, fix- by making things better mm-hmm. because they think there's never going to be a point where these things can make sense in the longer term. But I want to highlight some really cool things that I've been seeing lately, which, you know, if they worked, we could actually see oil and gas be part of a longer term solution in the lower carbon, even a net zero world. So I want to talk about in May, Occidental, which is a big producer in the Permian and even bigger now, they acquired Anadarko, made an announcement that they're going to use direct air capture to grab CO2 out of the air. And then they're going to put that into the reservoir and they believe that they're going to inject so much CO2 into the reservoir uh, as they produce the oil that they are going to create a fully carbon neutral or even net negative fuel. So they're, they're saying that they're putting so much CO2 in that they offset the emissions associated with producing the oil and gas and combusting it. Yeah. So actually, this oil could be existing in 2080 uh, and in a net zero world because it's actually you know absorbing as much CO2 yeah. as it is creating it. And um, like that's... That's revolutionary. So, like, you know, this idea that oil and gas can't get better and be part of that future uh, is being challenged. It's being challenged. And, you know, so what you're saying is that there's technological advances being made in taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Actually, there's a company here in Canada, Carbon Engineering, out of Squamish, BC. Yeah, in fact, that's who uh, we should do a little call out for a Canadian company. So that's who is providing this technology for Occidental in the Permian. It's a Canadian company, Carbon Engineering, backed by uh, Murray Edwards, Bill Gates, and many others that is basically putting this technology that will be able to take the CO2 right out of the atmosphere, as opposed to most carbon capture storage projects today, which, you know, have to take the CO2 off an industrial plant, like a power plant or a refinery, you know, because they don't have a way to just take it out of the air. This is taking it right out of the air. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, so, okay, so you're saying it takes enough out of the air that it compensates for upstream emissions plus even the downstream emissions of combusting it. Exactly. So, you know, we could be using this oil long into the future because it's it's not creating net uh, CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. It's absorbing as much as it's creating. Or it's a solution over the course of the next 20 years that is a compound or collaborative solution that uses the best technologies to get back to that original objective that I was talking about, which is if I have a dollar to spend, how would I spend it today to mitigate carbon emissions over the course of the next 20 years as best as possible? Not just focus on trying to displace the fuel, but also just trying to make the supply chain of the fuel existing incumbent fuels less carbon intense. Well, but, you know, I would argue this could be around a lot more than 20 years from now because it It is uh, not creating new CO2 molecules in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so it actually provides a long-term pathway for oil and gas. And so, you know, to your plan B, you know, if the goal is to be net carbon neutral at some point in the future, renewables maybe aren't the only path to get there. Technologies like this are. And I want to bring up one other example. And I think a lot of uh, folks that listen to our podcast are here in Western Canada or in Canada. And you may not even be aware that this year we're going to start operating Alberta's carbon trunk line, which is 
a 240-kilometer pipeline that's going to inject CO2 from the Alberta heartland, which is near Edmonton, where we have a lot Mm -hmm. of our refineries and petrochemical plants, into an oil reservoir in central Alberta. They've made this trunk line very large so that hopefully we can get a lot of different producers taking advantage of this CO2. It will actually be able to move about 15 million tons annually into the ground. And we are going to get uh, the developers of this on our podcast uh, after the summer. Um, but what they are saying is that this could also be net zero on upstream and downstream emissions associated with the oil that's produced. Yeah. Uh, so not only because of this CO2 are we going to produce a lot more oil than we would have otherwise, this oil is not going to contribute to climate change because we're going to be injecting as much CO2 as the oil creates. Yeah, I mean, that brings about an interesting thought experiment. I mean, okay... We know the upstream part of the business contributes to the the carbon loading, but what if that upstream part of the business, the oil and gas business, actually became net zero or full zero? Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, like... Okay, so uh, now, this is- now, now what happens in terms of the debate about where best to put a dollar to mitigate emissions? I think it should be the most reasonably priced energy that we can have. Mm -hmm. Because if they're all equal in terms of the CO2 uh, situation, then it should be the most economical source of gigajoule that you have, right? Right. A a competition will sort that out, right? right? Right. The cheapest source of energy. Um, And I want to say one other thing about this. Like, this is starting to really pop up all over the energy industry. We Mm -hmm. had, I've talked about it before, the Italian company and I make a net zero target. Now that was just on their upstream. So not downstream, but on the upstream. And CNRL, Canadian Natural Resources, the largest uh, producer here in Canada, a lot of people don't know, they have made a net zero aspirational goal as well. And we're actually going to have Steve Lout from CNRL come on our podcast here soon to explain what that is, what they're doing to get there. And and I think a lot of people don't recognize. No, they don't. Do they have a timeline? Well, we're going to ask him that. Yeah, there isn't a timeline right now on the information I've seen. But you know, I think that's fair. I think it's great to put an aspirational goal out there. Like, yeah. hey, we have the same vision as many of you is and we want to drive our production to be having less impact on the environment. You know, we're putting out that goal. We'll figure out how we're going to get there. I think it can be done in the next 10 years, given, you know, my read on the technologies that are starting to emerge and, you know, even private sector dollars going into thinking about what can we do with CO2 in terms of capturing it, or upgrading it into different products that we can use, and also to ensure that there are less emissions produced at the source, upstream at the wellhead. I totally agree with you. I think the industry is under so much pressure right now from, you know, primarily investors at this point. And if you look at uh, some of the activist groups that are going after some of the big companies, and they're basically saying, you have to make commitments like these in terms of trying to get to net zero. CEOs are getting their compensation tied to achieving these goals. Right. Uh, they're not raising capital if they can't prove this. I think the innovation is going to happen faster. And so this idea that the, you know, we keep some oil and gas in the future mix, um, and that's negative for the environment. You know, the industry in, is innovating so that they can be part of that future. Well, mix. and they should be encouraged to innovate. I mean, the, the narrative right now is uh, you're going to be put out of business, right? Well, whenever you challenge anybody with that sort of language, it becomes very defensive. But if you challenge them and say, try and have an aspirational goal to get your emissions to zero, that is a different message. And I think that's the message that needs to be encouraged. The good news, I think, is is that the progressive companies in the oil and gas business in Canada, even internationally, a lot of the Western companies have those sorts of aspirations now, and they are to be watched. 
Yeah. So uh, with that, I think I will encourage everyone to read the article. You had a lot of good feedback on mm-hmm. it. Um, but, you know, the goal is to move from unrealistic projections and just sort of sticking our head in the sand and saying, oh, we'll draw these charts and say we're going to get there, even though nothing you know shows mm-hmm. that we're going to get there, to thinking differently about how the money should be spent. You know, not just investing in windmills and solar panels alone. It's just not going to get us there. But thinking about energy efficiency, which is a huge one. And conservation. Um, conservation and cleaning up the fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these pieces of the puzzle are needed. Yeah, there's no one solution. It's a multidimensional solution that involves collaboration and attention to every single energy system. Because to think that multi-trillion dollar industries are going to go away like uh, DVD players is just a really naive (laughs) it's a naive it's a naive assumption and the numbers show it so great discussion yeah thanks for joining us on our podcast if you like this podcast please rate us and tell someone else about us for more ideas and insights visit arcenergyinstitute.com